Hello and welcome to Impactability, the Nonprofit Leaders Podcast. This is a show that explores the landscape of the nonprofit organization, big and small, offers some incredibly helpful information and resources, and gives nonprofits a place to share ideas and get advice. I'm your host, Joe Turner. Our show is sponsored by Sukup Strategic Solutions, offering a wide variety of services to help nonprofits maximize their impact. So let's get into solving the problems that might be plaguing your nonprofit. Thanks for joining us today on Impactability. You know, we've talked a lot on this podcast about collaboration and partnerships and that kind of thing. And today we're going to dig even deeper. And the result, I think, could have a major impact on your organization. So here's the thing. Imagine joining forces with another nonprofit to meet a common goal on the basis of your shared values. Now, that sounds very, very simple and straightforward, but is it that simple for you and for the other nonprofit? Let me give you an example. You may be an organization that works for veteran causes, and another might be working for helping people find jobs. Well, if you put the two together, helping veterans find jobs, just kind of an example, how you can take what you do and just think about partnering with another nonprofit to help each other. You're not competing, you're helping. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Before you think this is a great idea to begin with and just race out to talk to whoever, you know, there are a few things you need to know about and you need to think about. And that's where our guest's expertise is going to come in today. James Wohler is the International Executive Director for Thrive for Good, a nonprofit that empowers people with the training and simple tools they need to grow an abundance of healthy, organic, disease-fighting foods for life. You got to love that. Sustainability. I love that. He started his first partnership when he was nine years old, you heard me right, using the money he made from cutting lawns. Now, for me, I was just buying ice cream, but he was doing something so much better. (laughs) His experience over the years has helped him take small organizations and scale up, and his work at Thrive is impacting hundreds of thousands of people. This is going to be a great conversation. He's joining us from his home office in British Columbia. James, thank you so much for joining us today on Impactability. Thanks, Joe. It's uh, it's great to be with you, and it's just a pleasure to be able to join you, uh, join the audience. I gotta say that I am impressed with your young start in the world of nonprofit work. What was it that got you so enamored with helping others at such a young age? Is there a backstory there? Oh, Joe. When you and I talked the other day, I, I never elaborated on it. But yeah, no, of course, there's a backstory, and I. I, I wish we had time and I'd, I'd actually love to share more. But really what it was is, I mean, I just say naturally, the house that I was raised in, my mother really taught me how to be empathetic. And anytime we would see people that were disadvantaged or had less privilege or were impoverished, you know, it led to conversations. And uh, it really opened my eye and my world of just understanding how important it is to really play a role in, you know, our communities, um, to give back. And what ended up happening is, I, honestly, I was probably six, I was probably seven years old. And a missionary came to speak at our church from the Philippines. And it was one of those where my parents asked me and I stayed in and I watched and I saw the photos and heard, heard his stories and I cried. I was heartbroken by uh, that exposure at that young age. And I went home and I borrowed my parents' lawnmower and I started, I said, hey, I want to go cut the neighbor's yard. Uh, Yes, this is 1987 and I was making $6 to cut the neighbor's yard. 
And at that stage, I, I was deeply compelled that I had to give back. And so I, uh, through Compassion International, started sponsoring a child. That's how it started, to be honest with you. And, you know, the, 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 the great part about that is, yeah, my entrepreneurial business just exploded. And I'll be honest with you, I think it's just because I had such a passion of giving back. So that was in the business world, but partnering with a not-for-profit, you know, uh, to live out my passion. Great story. Love that. I had I had to know. Okay, so let's get into our discussion about partnerships. Now, I know that our conversation last week was exhilarating for me. I just add, I loved it. You had me fired up. And now I want to pass that fire on to our listeners. How can we, as nonprofits, get involved in finding the right partnerships? What, what are the first steps? Yeah, and I think, you know, uh, the right steps in finding a good partner is, I mean, I first got to give my disclaimer. You know I'm passionate about this. I really believe this is the future of um, in the not-for-profit space, you know, is us scaling up through partnerships. And, you know, first of all, the good news is it's the future. I think our organization has doubled our impact for the last three years in a row. And it's because of partnerships. We're going to double again next year, even though our expenses are only going up probably 20%. Um, so I believe in it. I think here's the bad news. This is not easy. It's messy. It's just like relationships. It's a lot of hard work, um, but the reward is there. What are the first steps? First of all, it has to be the core fabric of a strategic partnership that you know is a strategy that you have to build within your organization. Like you got to be serious about it, right? And then there's a whole process that has to get built out as it relates to what do the right partnerships look like? What are the values we have to align? What are we offering? Because to get into a partnership, you got to have a list of, and I mentioned to you, we have a sell sheet at Thrive for Good of like, when we go into a partnership, this is how we're going to add value. So, you know, those are some of the first steps. And then it it comes down to looking for, you know, uh, who those right partners are. So let me ask you this then, is there a right and wrong partnership? (laughs) Yeah, there is. um, And I can say from experience, we're probably uh, a healthy two years into this uh, partnership strategy that we're using to scale up our impact. And yeah, we've experienced right partnerships and wrong partnerships. Um, As you can imagine, just like in business, yeah, wrong partnerships, they can hurt. Uh, they can set you back, right? So we're actually taking a step back. We're reviewing our partnership strategy. It's been actually extremely encouraging for us to look at what are the what are the good partnerships that and why have they been working and how do we continue that? And I, I think let me give some tactical um, examples here of five things that we've really identified that are the success of the the partnerships we've had. First off is leadership and strategy. When looking and evaluating a partner, what, 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 you know, what is their leadership and what is their strategy and does it align with you? Do they have a clearly defined vision, right? Do they have the same value proposition? Second of all is systems and processes. If an organization has got very solid systems and processes and they're efficient, this is really going to help with a partnership. Then it's not chaotic. Then it's not messy. Uh, the third thing is, it's the skills and the support. If the partner has got, you know, their staff you're going to be working with, if they're skilled and if they're offering that support, you can see where this is going to lead to a successful partnership. Fourth one is a culture. 
We have definitely experienced there are some not-for-profits that we've gotten into, and they do not have a partnering culture. And then it leads to a lot of inward uh, looking, what's in it for me. There has to be a partnering culture. And by the way, humility is uh, what, what I, I, we find is probably the most important thing there. Are you in it for the same reason? You know, We're all in this together for the cause. Last one is the networks and relationships. You got to have a key liaison within that you can keep that communication, you can keep that relationship extremely strong because it's gonna need work. Can you give me an example of you, you know, two nonprofits, how they can partner together? Yeah, I'm, um, I'll, I'll give you an example without using some names. Um, and this is just kind of a recent one where we, we actually just had a meeting here in the last two weeks. And uh, this organization works in 130 countries uh, they have a focus on taking care of um, children at risk, um, or orphan children. And when we approached this organization, we looked at it, those five tactical things I talked about, we feel that they excel in, we feel they have a need. They're taking care of 100,000 children at risk. They're spending millions and millions of dollars a year on buying food. And even at that, you know, I, I can't even comment to say it's the best quality of nutritious, healthy, disease-fighting food. So we came to this organization saying, let us partner with you. Let us embed a champion and multiple champions within, and we can all of a sudden start cascade our training. So we're going to start launching in January in key East African countries. We're talking to them about Southeast Asia and launching as well in their um, children-led community homes. And obviously the outcome and the hope is that we get to expand our impact with tens and tens and tens of thousands of more community and children, and right? And what they get out of it is they're probably, to be honest with you, gonna save over 90% on their food costs in a typical year. I think we're gonna save them over a million dollars once they start growing their own healthy, nutritious food. Great example of how a partnership of two not-for-profits coming together work. And Joe, as you mentioned earlier in the beginning, we're in non-competing sectors, nor do we even look at it that way, back to the values. We're all in it together. And at the end of the day, we're empowering and optimizing this organization to do what they do even better. And then they can you know, take charge and they can lead with it. And we've had incredible conversations. Fantastic. I love that story. You know, one of the things that you said in our discussion earlier uh, when we first met uh, was that you see so many partnership opportunities in the nonprofit sector. So why do you think nonprofits are so reticent to develop these partnerships? <laughs> I think, Joe, I, I'm, I'm so careful of answering that because I don't want to be that guy. You know, as I mentioned, I've been in business the last 15 years, and it's only recently kind of coming into the charity space and, you know, not-for-profit space. And I think I have the benefit as an outsider and then kind of, you know, coming in by nature, as we mentioned. Yeah, I'm a disruptor. I, um, I, I challenge things. I want to think out of the box. But, yeah, I have noticed that. I will be honest. In the for-profit space, you get partnerships that happen all the time. You know, I think about GoPro and Red Bull. They had an incredible partnership and it made sense in coming together. Pottery Barn came together with Sherwin-Williams. You can see the partnerships. I don't know why I think not-for-profits are, as you say, reticent. They're conservative or held back. 
I sometimes think there might be a little bit of fear. I think as not-for-profits and executive directors, we are heavily influenced by the donations we receive and where it goes. And it becomes very inward looking and we got to take the credit. We got to raise our flag to show the impact of those dollars given. I do think the financial structure of philanthropy and charitable giving has influence on those things. And what it does is it does guardrail and put a lot of restrictions around unable for not-for-profits to partner. Another one would be risk. I often find in the not-for-profit space, there's not as much risk taking, not nearly as much, whether it's on IT and technology and right, because the, the, the risk of losing or something not working could be devastating. And again, it's because of, I think, donor directed funds and how we structure it. I will share on one of that, this, and, and I think this is really good. And then I'll kind of cap this off. We try new things and we will always continuously learn. We'll challenge convention and we're never afraid to fail. That's our value of being an innovator. And that could then you know, lead into partnerships. Something we could learn from, obviously, is to kind of look beyond the competitive nature, would you say? Sometimes it, it, you might feel a bit competitive. And instead of, like you had said earlier, instead of competition, it should be about the mission and, and what you're trying to do to, to better the world, right? Joe, absolutely. And I think that's the difference of where maybe that's something. I find the culture in a not-for-profit uh, sector I feel that we often view it as a zero sum game. The pie is only so big and there's only so many dollars and we gotta be competitive with what's available. In a business world, honestly, how we found it is, no, it's not a zero sum game. We're here to create the size of the pie and make the pie even bigger. It's so we're exponentially trying to create, you know, increase the size of the pie. Um, that's, so yeah, you're a hundred percent right. And I know that that has been the conversation. We're now partnering with over 20 organizations, um, some of them extremely large, like over $500 million a year annual revenue. And that's the nature of our conversations, right? We say we can't do this alone. We're all in this together. And if we can help each other, yeah. Absolutely. We're speaking with James Waller about partnerships and the impact that they can have on your organization. I hope you're enjoying this conversation because I'm just, I'm riveted. This is so good. We're going to pause for a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to figure out how your organization can become fit for partnering. You can't just do it overnight. You got to do a little homework. We're also going to talk about the partnering culture and James is going to give us some ways to hit the ground running today and get things going for your nonprofit. You're listening to Impactability, the Nonprofit Leaders Podcast. I'm Joe Turner. We'll be right back. A good, strong board can be the lifeblood of a nonprofit. A passionate and motivated board member can make all the difference to your organization. If your board has a clear vision, shared values, and a sound strategy, your nonprofit can soar. But first, you need to find good board members, align their skills with your goals, train them in the many facets of being a good board member, and keep them motivated. At Sukup Strategic Solutions, our team evaluates the effectiveness and efficiency of your organization's systems in place. We define processes to ensure your organization functions at its best so you can grow your programs and reach more people. We specialize in board recruitment, development, and performance, along with helping you set up or revise policies, establish and kickstart your committees, and lots more. We have facilitated in hundreds of board meetings and retreats and can develop a plan for your board to make it the best it can be. 
To find out more, visit SukupStrategicSolutions.com and schedule a free consultation. That's S-O-U-K-U-P StrategicSolutions.com. Maximize your nonprofit's impact with Sukup Strategic Solutions. Welcome back to Impactability, the Nonprofit Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Turner. We're speaking with James Wohler about partnerships and the impact that they can have on your organization. Now, coming up in just a few minutes, another edition of Coach's Corner. And this is going to be a very important and special one because it has to do with risk mitigation, especially in light of the recent hurricane that recently affected Florida, our home state here. But right now, we're getting back to our conversation with James. And you know, when you and I talked earlier I said to you how enlightening this was, but there's still one thing that I'm not sold on, James, and I'm hoping that you're going to help us with this. Why would another nonprofit be interested in my nonprofit? Because as I said, there's that competitive thing. Is there a way that I can make them more interested or us more interesting? Yeah, um, I feel almost sometimes, Joe, I feel like an imposter, you know, as it relates to even, you know, being a, as you mentioned, an expert talking about this. And, and I say it just because we're trying to figure this out. <laughs> I, I have yet to discover a playbook or a step-by-step guide. Um, you know, as you know, I'm calling in from Canada. In Canada, we've got an association we're a part of. There's over 150 not-for-profits. This is completely new, right? So we've been kind of pegged as the pioneer moving forerunner with this. That being said, I can at least share from what we're learning and what we're experiencing, right? Um, One of the challenges we've had, and I don't think we've done a great job, we're significantly trying to get better at, and it's selling ourselves. I think the concept of selling yourself is a little bit uh, new to a not-for-profit, because we're not used to doing that, right? That's not our core business. If I were in for-profit business, that's what we do. We sell our product, our widget, or our services, right? We're in the nature of we got to make ourselves look great. We're trying to bring that on, recognizing we're really good at what we do, and we're changing lives, and it's awesome. It's okay to talk about it in those terms and say, the service that we offer can help you. As I mentioned, we've even changed our language. We have a sell sheet. And in that sell sheet, we put together our product offering, what we can do for you, and how it's going to benefit and create value to your organization. And when we enter those conversations, yeah, we're trying to sell ourselves, right? And we've become okay with that. And it's actually really helped us in our conversations with other not-for-profits. It's actually been an aid. How does this affect fundraising? (laughs) So far, I think the conversations with our donor base and the donors that we seek to attract and we work with, they're loving it. They love that we're not trying to do it alone. It has greatly reduced our cost because instead of a one-for-one growth, we're getting a one-for-three growth, right? We're 10Xing at a lower cost. So donors love it. Fundraising is then easier. It's easier to fundraise for projects when we're not floating 100% of the bill, the coalition coming together. We recently, because of the crisis of what's happening in Sri Lanka, we are literally launching in Sri Lanka in three weeks, coalition of four partners that all came together. We're all contributing together for it. 
it's been a lot easier to fundraise, especially when not paying for a hundred percent of it. Right. Um, it's donors really like that and it's a lot easier to fundraise. So I think it's great. Interesting. I like that. Now talk to us about the partnering culture. I mean, is this something that once we get going, that it's going to change the way we do things at our nonprofit? Do you think? Boy, I hesitate to think because it's, um, again, as we're figuring this out, maybe the comments I could say to that are, and this is an encouragement for anybody listening that wants to start exploring, you know, adding a partnering culture and strategy to your organization. I would say you got to commit to it and you got to be all in. And over time now, a couple of years into this, we are all in. We are literally creating our strategic you know, um, growth plan based on this. You got to be all in and you got to really commit to it. And the reason why I, I believe in that so much, and I wish we would have done it earlier, is it's hard and it's messy, as I, you know, as I mentioned. And that should be expected. But to work through that and fight through that, the gains and the rewards are far more valuable than to not do it. So, yeah, I, I think we're going to see a lot more partnering amongst and between not-for-profits. And uh, I think it's going to be a lot more part of our culture, to be honest with you. So, okay, I'm sold on this idea. I like what you're saying. It makes perfect sense. So now how does my nonprofit kind of hit the ground running today with this idea? What do we got to look for? Where, where should we start? Give us the, the starting points. Number one, build your service offering. This is, what do you offer? So if you are to create a partnership strategy for your growth and expansion, when you start approaching other not-for-profits, what is your value add? Empathetically put yourself in the shoe of another not-for-profit is getting approached by your organization. What do you have to offer and what service or what value to help another organization accomplish their goods? You did a great example in the very beginning. If you've got a veteran, an organization that helps with veterans, and you've got another organization that helps with job, uh, job placement. You can see what the service offering is, or for this matter, you know, the, what the market is. You know, we call it our landing pad, right? Uh, the, you know, an organization that works with veterans, they have a list and they have a ton of veterans that are in their database or their network that they work with. That's fantastic. So build your service offering would be the first place to start. Once you've identified that and once you've kind of, I think, worked through that and you feel that you got a good package, right? And I call it, get that package on a silver plate ready to serve. Then after that, start working on building your internal strategy for growth. We always start with pilot projects, right? Try it. Try what works because you're going to refine it. I promise you. Second of all, you got to start working to get the right people in those places. We've touched on it a little bit, but making sure that you've got people working in a partnership strategy that are open to change, they're innovators, they're creators, they're willing to pivot. If you've got people that are more stuck and rigid, I think you're going to run into some challenges. After that, I would say another thing would be make sure you measure everything. At Thrive for Good, we are driven by data. Everything we do is data driven and we measure it. We can go to partners. We can show them down to dollars how much they're going to benefit by planting gardens to provide food, right? The last thing I would say as you're going through this is communication. It, it like, just like relationships, you have to have clear, decisive communication 
and it always has to have open lines. Fantastic conversation. I've often said in doing this podcast that one of my favorite topics of discussion is the whole partnering, collaborating kind of vibe and, and how it can really benefit a lot of nonprofits. And our conversation today, James, has proven me right. Thank you so much. James Waller has been our guest today on Impactability. I think what you've done is really kind of enlightened us on what is possible for our nonprofit by exploring partnerships, something that maybe a lot of nonprofits aren't thinking about right now. You're giving us something to think about. James, thank you so much. Continued success at Thrive for Good. Thanks, Joe. It's been a pleasure being a part of this. Time once again for another Coach's Corner where we take the questions that you send us, the questions that you're asking around the office. Maybe you want a different opinion on something, whatever it might be in the nonprofit sector, that's what Coach's Corner is here for, to answer those questions. Today, an extremely timely question. I've got Cheryl Sukup, the president of Sukup Strategic Solutions with me today. Cheryl, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks, Joe. For those of you that may not be aware, our program originates from the Southwest Florida area that was recently impacted by Hurricane Ian. I'm happy to say everyone on our staff is doing well and suffered minor damage, if any, which is the good news. But the bad news is there's a lot of other people that are faced with a lot of situations. And I think that's really where this question comes from, Cheryl, about emergency preparedness and tips for people to be prepared for any kind of emergency, especially one like this. Yeah, thanks, Joe. So I appreciate the question today. And it's such a timely question, considering what our community has been going through here in Southwest Florida. I've seen a lot of damage related to various hurricanes in our community, and the way that nonprofits respond is incredible. Um, the way the community comes together is just so heartwarming and reminds me all the time of why we do the work that we do as nonprofit leaders. So this particular topic is something that a lot of nonprofit leaders become too busy to think about or to do anything about it when you are not faced with an emergency. So we're here to just remind you that emergency planning can help a great deal when it comes to dealing with the recovery. So if you've done a great job planning ahead, then recovery is that much easier. So I'm thinking about all of our nonprofit friends today in Southwest Florida and really across Florida, and knowing that many have suffered such great losses, but we're here with you, for you, and continue to think about you and pray for you and your well-being as you recover from this very, very difficult Hurricane Ian. So um, with that, I just want to give you some tips about really emergency planning, and it all starts with the broader topic of risk management. So Joe, if you want to start my timer, I'm ready to do my five minutes. The five minutes begins right now, Cheryl. <laughs> okay, thanks, Joe. All right, so risk management really should include the following steps for any nonprofit. So you want to start with identifying your risks and then thinking about what you can do to mitigate those risks. Then you can ensure against loss and then plan for recovery. And so all those four things should be done at a time when you are not faced with an emergency. So identifying risk, risk, I wanted to talk about that a little bit. Risk analysis really is the process of identifying credible threats that could cause an interruption in an organization's business. So you want to consider a variety of things. One of them is what are your 
potential disasters, both internal and external. So I'm thinking about things like, you know, think historically, what kinds of emergencies have occurred in your community? or maybe in your facilities or at a nearby nonprofit. So is there like a human error type of emergency that has happened in the past? So for instance, think about what problems or emergencies that could be caused by employees. Also physical, what kinds of emergencies could result from the design or the construction of your facilities? Or consider things that could occur unexpectedly that aren't related to a natural disasters, things like a loss of electricity or a ruptured gas main or a fire, something like that, those kinds of things. A building could collapse. Those kinds of things could come from your physical location. But also in today's age, technological is a big area of risk. What could happen as a result of a crash of your computer or the whole network if you're on a network? And then also theft. What could happen if you had somebody that had accessed your office but was not permitted to? Or cyber theft, right? So what would happen if somebody were able to gain access to your information? So these are all things that we have to think about when we're assessing our risk. And then other man-made hazards. We talked about some crimes that could occur, like theft or fire could be caused by arson. There's terrorism. But other things could happen that maybe you don't normally think about, like what about a domestic abuse that occurs on your property or a trip and fall or something like that? Transportation accidents, if you're transporting people, et cetera. There's just so many different things that are dependent on your type of service. So you want to also think about the operation of your programs. What could be happening? For instance, if you are providing services to children, what are some of the child-related hazards like choking or biting or allergies, abuse, neglect, anything like that. But it's a really good practice to think with your team, what are some possible scenarios? And then talk through how you might handle some of them. So for example, if an individual is injured at your facility, how do you handle that? And then as we're dealing with right now, if your administrative office is rendered unusable, for instance, in our case, many, many people were flooded out of their offices and many of them are without power or internet. So what do you do then? If people have planned ahead, then they can still continue business. It might be in a different location, but they're able to continue moving forward and providing services to the community. What if you experience an impact in the larger geographic area, rendering the entire area uninhabitable for an unknown amount of time? We're experiencing that in Sanibel right now. The whole island of Sanibel and Captiva is inaccessible by road right now. And there has been major flooding and wind damage. So so then you want to do your best to mitigate risks. And this is really something for uh, probably another coach's corner. But once you've identified the risks that you have to your organization, you can take a lot of steps to minimize that risk and avoid loss. Things like... Um, considering your environmental design, investing in safety equipment, things as simple as policies and procedures and personnel training can really help to mitigate that risk. And then for some things that are difficult to mitigate against, or even if you've tried your best to mitigate, you still might have some loss. So not all loss can be mitigated, but insurance policies can be purchased to provide financial resources for recovery 
And so if there are certain types of loss that you can anticipate, you've done your best to mitigate, but you still have loss, at least insurance can help. And then also just planning for recovery. When you're making your contingency plans, when things are calm, you have a much better ability to think about what you would do in the case of an emergency. But we can learn from things that we've experienced, right? So taking this current emergency uh, as an example, thinking through what is an acceptable level of downtime and where could your staff go to operate your programs if your site is uh, unusable. Um, so thinking about those things ahead of time instead of trying to scramble and figure out where figure out where you're going to be when you're faced with a disaster. So that's all for now, Joe. I really appreciate the time that you gave me today to um, to think about and talk about this topic. It's really an important one. And uh, for those organizations who were planning ahead, they're much better off in this emergency that we're experiencing now. And uh, they're able to recover much more quickly. I like the idea, Cheryl, of having the entire team get together and just throw some things on the table. Maybe it's a half-day session that you all get together around the conference table and you just start talking about, if this happens, what do we do? If that happens, what do we do? I think that's a great idea, Cheryl. Thank you. I think one thing that some organizations do that's really smart is to set up a risk management committee when they're thinking about developing their risk management plan. And then also there are professionals that provide this service. Um, there's so much that can be done around this and people don't like to think about it until they're in a in a terrible situation, but it really is important to do. And there's just so many resources out there. You know, it's a shame to not take advantage of that and then be hit with some kind of emergency or disaster and you're not prepared. Absolutely. Cheryl, thanks so much for being with us on Coach's Corner today. Thank you, Joe. And I just want to take a minute to say to everybody in Southwest Florida, we're with you and um, our hearts go out to those who have experienced loss, especially some of our clients who do some amazing work in the community. We, we're here for you and are by your side as you're recovering from this, this hurricane and any loss that you've experienced. If you've got a question for Coach's Corner, we want to hear from you. Email them to us at impactcoaches at impactability.net. Again, that's impactcoaches at impactability.net. And if you want to reach me, my email address is joe.turner at impactability.net. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, and that way you'll get new episodes downloaded just as soon as they come out. Also, please give us a review or a rating so that your peers in the nonprofit industry can find us as well. I'm Joe Turner. Thanks for listening, and thank you for all you do to make the world a better place through your nonprofit.